0: Away from Memorial Day weekend, and uh, for all of you who served in the armed forces, uh, we thank you for your service, and we especially uh, remember this weekend those who have fallen in battle uh, in our, from our nation uh, all the way back to the Revolutionary War. So we're thankful for the freedom that we have. and. And we are grateful to those who defended that freedom to the ultimate. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of John. It's good to see the Tegetops here with us this morning. It's been quite a few years since you folks were here. Glad to have you here. They were here with us for... Yes, yes, uh, I I almost forgot. I want you to stand for the reading of the word. So that's, uh, (laughs) my wife's reminded me there, I said we were going to stand. We're going to start with verse 8. We'll be reading through verse 34. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought, to the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that That this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does God's will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Thank you. Be seated, please. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning that we have the opportunity to come and worship and sing praises to your name, to fellowship together and to encourage one another and to uh, pray for one another and, Lord, to, to give to your work and to preach your word. We thank you for all these things that are a part of our worship this morning, and we pray that you would be pleased to receive them uh, from our hearts. Uh, In adoration to you who are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Newton's third law of motion motion states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. This is certainly true in the physical universe, but it is also true spiritually. Spiritually. Let me give you a hypothetical situation. A woman who had attended a church for many years suddenly realized that she, was never, she had never really understood the gospel and that she had never been truly saved. After she re- understood this, she believed and she was truly saved. And her life took on some radical changes and she demonstrated much joy and rejoicing as a result. Excited to share the news, she went to her pastor of this church she had been attending to tell him the good news of what had happened to her. But instead of rejoicing with her, his reaction was stern and deflating. He told her not to succumb to her emotions and to encouraged her to uh, just continue on as she always had. Her relationship after that deteriorated in that church, and she found, finally found another church where the people were encouraged, uh, encouraging to her and rejoiced with her on her newfound faith and were very glad of her salvation. Now, that's a hypothetical story. Unfortunately, it would be nice if this story were only fiction, but it is not. For you would think that when a person comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives, then that they would be able to tell other believers of that, and those people would rejoice with them rather than put them down for it. You would think the discouragements would come from infidels and those who were outright enemies of the gospel, However, it is often true that that kind of discouragement comes from those who are the most religious, but they themselves do not know the Lord. They, they oftentimes become the worst opponents. This was true of Jesus' day when this blind man became, uh, went to the pool and came washing, Uh, and came back seeing, can you imagine how excited he must have been to tell everyone what had happened to him? And as he told his neighbors the the story of what had happened, and no doubt to them mentioned the name of Jesus because he knew who Jesus was uh, as far as the one who had opened his eyes, and uh, he had sat outside the temple for many years begging for alms from the people, so long he had become a fixture at that place. The people knew who he was by virtue of his condition and beggarly lifestyle. But the fact that his neighbors questioned who he was recognizes or, or tells of the difference that they saw in his life. This man was different. He didn't. He was no longer. Uh, groping and, and trying to find his way, staggering about. He could see. His sight was clear. There was something different about him. And so the difference of opinion as to who he was comes as some of his neighbors identified him as the beggar they knew While others said it was just somebody who looked like him. This carries on in the narrative to the Pharisees. These people, his neighbors, they didn't even trust their own senses as to looking at this man whom they had seen to be blind all his life and now he can see. He kept on insisting, he kept on saying over and over, I am the man. In fact, he uses the same words that Jesus used when he said, "I am." In fact, that's that's what you find in the original. When they said he looks like someone else, he was simply saying, "I am, I am," over and over again, to try to convince them that he was the man who had been healed of a blindness, congenital blindness. What a beautiful picture of the work of God in the life of an individual who is a sinner and comes to know the Savior. Arthur Pink gives a sevenfold description. First, he was found outside the temple, displaying the fact that in his natural condition as an elect sinner, he was alienated from God. We have to understand that even, even the elect, who will be saved at some point in time, are alienated from God and are sinners. Just like everyone else, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Second, he was blind and therefore unable to see the Savior when he approached him. Isn't that just the way it is? You approach someone with the good news of the gospel and they're blind to it. They can't see it. They would never come to it on their own because they cannot see it. They're blind Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Third, he had been blind from birth. So too is every person who is born into this world. They are are sinners and they are estranged from the womb, Psalm 58 verse 3 says. Fourth, he was quite beyond the aid of men. He was helpless and hopeless unless God sought him out and intervened in his behalf, which he did. For while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus said it in chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Fifth, he was a beggar. Unable to purchase any remedy for his blindness, for his lostness. Even if there was one, he was unable to purchase it. He was completely dependent upon someone else's charity. Six, he made no appeal to the Savior and uttered no cry for mercy. Such is our condition before divine grace begins to work in us. And finally, the reasoning of the disciples in verse 2 illustrates the sad fact that no mere human eye pities the sinner in its spiritual wretchedness. People who, are, people who are unbelieving, people who are lost, they pass people all the time who are in the same condition they are and they have no spiritual understanding of their wretchedness and their blindness. What a picture Of the grace of God at work in a man's life. It appears that in from verses 10 and 11. That at least some of his neighbors. And those who knew him believed that he had been cured of his blindness. Because they asked him how then were your eyes opened. The man gives a condensed but detailed account of how it all took place in verse 11. He even called Jesus by name. So he knew that it was Jesus who had put the mud on his eyes and told him to go and wash. He must have heard one of the disciples maybe call Jesus by name. Or or maybe Jesus told him not to be afraid. This is, I'm Jesus. We don't know how he knew his name. But he knew it. And he was willing to tell it. So those, walk, those, uh, those he was talking with, uh, asking in verse 12, where is Jesus? Where is he? The man said, I don't know where he is. It seems clear that the man didn't know that Jesus was the Savior, at this point at least. But God is working in his life. And he could not have known his location. Since Jesus had departed from the temple, this man is now in his own neighborhood with his own parents and his neighbors. He didn't know where Jesus had gone. We get to verse 13 and through verse 34, we find that an investigation begins about the miracle by those who are in opposition to divine truth. They wallow in their unbelief. Always trying to find some way to discredit the truth of God. That has not changed among, among those who are, are lost. There are always going to be people who will seek to discredit God by virtue of us. I remember I remember years ago when I was in the military... They were always having these uh, beer parties and drinking parties after working hours. And they would stay around. Instead of going home, at the end of their shift, they would stay around and they would drink beer and tell their stories. And it was a it was a, a fiasco of, of sinfulness. And uh, I never wanted to be a part of that and, and always excused myself uh, to leave. And one day I had to go across the base to the dentist and... Uh, My wife had 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 the car that day, and and, uh, so I set out walking. It wasn't all that far. I could get there easily on foot. And so I went to the dentist, and as I was coming back, walking back, uh, this car pulled up next to me, and it was some of the guys from the the hangar where I worked. And they said, come on, we'll give you a ride. So I hopped in the car, and they pulled into the hangar uh, and parked right next to the back door. I thought that was kind of strange since the parking lot was out behind. So I hopped out, thanked them for the ride, and, they, and one of the guys said, uh, oh, you don't get up so easy here. Uh, we've got stuff to take in. And they they tossed a couple of cases of beer in my arms. Ooh, I felt very uncomfortable because I knew this was for their drunken parties that they were going to have. And I didn't want to carry it in, but I thought, well, I'll just carry it in and set it down quick. So nobody notices. So I walked through the door, and guess who was standing there? This fellow that I had been witnessing to for months and months. And when he saw me with that beer, he he said, Oh, Snyder. And he's he up one side and down the other. He was ridiculing me. You call yourself a man of God. You call yourself a Christian, so on and so on and so on. Or you're just inviting me to drink this beer. I really felt bad about that. But all he was really doing was trying to discredit the truth of what I had told him in the gospel message. That's all he was doing. It could have been anything else. It could have been a slip of the tongue or, or anything that he could disparage Christ in my life as a result. This is what we find happening here. They wanted to discredit the truth of God. John's gospel is called the gospel of belief, but it is also the gospel that reveals the abject refusal of belief among the Jews. And they are a picture, my friends, of all people who reject the gospel, but particularly of those who reject the truth, who are a part of those who lead people spiritually. will talk about that here in a moment. John characterizes them, or Jesus characterized them, in Mark chapter 9 as an unbelieving generation. That kind of rejection means judgment and imminent judgment. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God of God. Over and over in John's Gospel he relates the unbelief in Israel as represented by the Pharisees, the, the if you will, the pastors. Although they weren't pastors in the sense of a New Testament pastor, but for for illustration's sake, they were the ruling religious leaders. This kind of systemic unbelief is rampant in America today. I did a little searching, and I found on the Barna, Barna website, the Barna group, who does surveys on, on religious uh, things in, in America, This I found statistics from 2022, that's only a year ago, that only 37% of all pastors, whether... Whether teaching or, un, or not, all pastors, 37%, believe in a biblical worldview. Only 37%. 62% of all those pastors believe in uh, syncretism. Uh, bringing together of all religions. Under one heading. That sounds very prophetic, doesn't it? Among teaching pastors, it drops to to a mere 13%. 13% of all teaching pastors have a biblical worldview. That means the rest of them do not. That means they don't believe, many of them, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. They don't believe that it is our guide for all of life. And they teach their people... People that sit under them, that kind of error. Is it any wonder that we're in the shape we're in in America when those who stand behind pulpits don't believe the book that they're trying to teach to people? And we're seeing it. We're seeing the effects of it in our young people across America, where now gangs of teenagers are ruling in parts of the bigger cities. The Pharisees had plunged Israel into a rejection of God's son because they rejected him. The unbelief was widespread, and the Pharisees gave vivid description of it from themselves. It was their their rejection, their unbelief was erratic, it was stubborn, it was unreasonable, and it was insulting. That's what we see in these verses that are coming. So, notice in verses 13 through 16 that there is an erratic nature to the Pharisees' demeanor as they ask the questions of how this man got his sight. Notice first the word they in verse 13. Some of those in the crowd trying to figure out what had happened brought this man to the Pharisees. We don't know what happened to him. Let's take him to the Pharisees. They'll have answers. This is what they thought. It was only natural for them to want to know how it had happened, even though the man had explained it to them. It was the Sabbath when the miracle occurred, so they probably waited until Sunday morning to have this meeting of the Sanhedrin because they would probably not have convened on the sabbath day. So how would the religious leaders react to the man being healed on the sabbath? Like the neighbors, the Pharisees wanted to know how he had received his sight. And he simply gave what he knew. He said, he put he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. If there was ever any simpler testimony of the work of the grace of God in a person's life, it's, it's this one. There's nothing more simple than that. He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. What else is there to explain? No embellishments. No long, drawn-out details. Just plain, simple facts as to the truth of what happened. That's all we need to do. That's all that's that's required of us. is to just witness what we know. Witness what has happened to us. We don't even have to explain it. We just have to be a witness to it. Or of it. Notice in verse 16. They were speaking of Jesus when they said, This man is not from God. Because they knew that it was Jesus who had healed him of his blindness. So why would Jesus break the Sabbath rules knowing that it would further enrage the Pharisees who had already issued warrants for his arrest and desired to kill him? Why would he do that? He had already broken the Sabbath laws before. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus defended his disciples for picking ears of corn as they went through the field. And in that same chapter, he healed a man's hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. John chapter 5, he healed a man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. So he had done this many times, and now here's another instance of healing someone On the Sabbath day and demanding or commanding them to go and wash in the pool. The reason he could break these Sabbath laws and did break them is because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Luke chapter 6 verse 5. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It was right after Right after Jesus said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, that he healed the man's hand in the synagogue, his withered hand. He was showing the people that the rules and regulations of the Jews were not scriptural regulations. They were not scriptural rules to follow. They were man-made. This is what legalism does. It makes up rules and regulations to follow that are not biblical in nature. That are not from the Word of God. He said they, they were burdensome. The Pharisees rules. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move their finger to help someone. The man was being judged by the Jews, and Jesus was being judged through him. This is an important part of this, because people will always judge Jesus through you and through me. His worth will be seen as great or little through us. But in reality, it was the Pharisees who were being judged here, just as John 3:18 says, "He that believes not is condemned already. They were condemning themselves by judging Jesus through this man. They assumed that Jesus could not be from God because he broke the Sabbath. But others, but other signs, others see the signs he did and wonder, how could he not be from God? If he does such signs as these. No one had ever healed a blind man that had been blind from birth. Jesus healed many blind people. But none were congenital but this man, according to what we see in Scripture. The division between them left them in a state of erratic confusion. They were battling and arguing back and forth, as Jews commonly did, back and forth over whether or not Jesus was from God or a sinner. Verses 17 to 24, we find the certainty that Jesus performed this miracle was right before them. And the evidence was clear and overwhelming. But in their stubborn unbelief, they were unwilling to accept anything that Jesus would do that would elevate him in the eyes of the people. They wanted nothing to do with him except to put him out of the way. So they asked the man what he thought. What do you think? about this man since there was an argument between the Jews some saying he was from God and others saying he was a sinner what do you think the man said he is a prophet that is a bold statement imagine yourself before these 70 men arguing back and forth and the the vehement hatred That you hear in their voices, and they're looking at you, and they want to know what you think about him. He is a prophet. That answer indicates that he believed that Jesus had come from God, for God is the mouthpiece, the prophets are the mouthpiece of God. This is the second time that Jesus is referred to as a prophet. The first was in chapter 4 when the, with the woman at the well. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And there were others that mentioned that he was a prophet but never actually called him one. He had already told his neighbors in verse 11, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. His eyes were already opening wider to the spiritual reality of what had happened. While the eyes of those who were judging him were growing darker and darker, being plunged deeper and deeper into unbelief where it is so dark that they cannot see and they don't want to see. You see, we need to understand that people who cannot see... Really don't want to see. They don't want to know the truth. All they know is, is their sin and, and practicing that. And they do that. We all do that very well naturally. But to be, to be confronted with the truth of God in the gospel. Many times causes people to plunge deeper into the darkness. And for the Pharisees, it was deeper and deeper into hatred for Jesus. The Jews did not believe then that the man had been born blind, but could now see. They didn't believe it. They say to themselves, maybe this is a case of mistaken identity. must have been someone else that had received their sight. This man is an imposter. They could not intimidate him who had been dealt with so graciously by Christ. The only way to settle this was to call the man's parents and get their testimony see if this was really true or not. But even in this, Ill will toward Jesus plays its role. When the parents came before the council, they were asked two questions that the Jews hoped would turn the case in their favor and discredit Jesus. They thought they could get the parents to deny that this was their son and that was born blind and, and foil the miracle. They wanted to foil the miracle. So they asked two questions. Some say it's three questions, but I think uh, that's by virtue of the first question. It has two parts. So they asked, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? So they're really asking two things in this question Is this your son and was he born blind? This two part question is intended to cast doubt on the witnesses of the man's parents but they attest that it is their son and they attest that he was indeed born blind second question is then how does he now see now if he had been under been in some kind of some kind of accident that they were witness of or if if there had been Some kind of surgical procedure that could have been done. They might have known about it. But I submit to you that they did know how he got his sight. But they would not mention the name of Jesus for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. You see, if you were put out of the synagogue, you had no social life left. Everyone would shun you. No one would talk to you. No one would let you buy from them. No one would let you sell to them. You would be an outcast. There was great fear involved here. So the parents have said that it was their son. He was born blind. But now they hedge on the answer to the question. Could they... They could truly say that they didn't know how he received his sight because they weren't actually there when it happened. All they have is their son's testimony. And why wouldn't they believe him? They probably did believe him. But they would not say that they did for fear. So they said, he is of age. Asked him. That tells us that... This was not a young child. This was a, he was a man. He was at least 13 years old or older. At 13 years old, the Jews were con- Jewish males were considered men. Very different from our society. But he was old enough to answer for himself. But the real reason they didn't answer because of the fear of being expelled from the temple. We see that in verse 22. Now, as we wrap up the thoughts of this this morning, there comes a time in the life of every believer when they have to answer for themselves and when they have to stand for themselves alone concerning their faith. This man does that in his testimony of receiving his sight. And he's not afraid to use Jesus' name in it because the Pharisees are well aware of who did this. But many times family and friends will not stand behind us or support us in our witness or in the changes that have taken place in our lives. I've actually had Unbelieving parents with children who come to know the Lord say they've gone crazy. My child's gone nuts. He's not the same person that he used to be. I've had spouses say the same thing. I've watched some spouses walk away from the marriage because they didn't like the changes that they saw in their, in their spouse. It is one thing for people to ask about certain life changes in one's life. It is another thing to ascribe those changes to Jesus. Sometimes you'll find a family member or a friend who will say, well, since they, since they became a Christian they're very different, you can, sometimes you'll hear that, but a lot of the times they've gone crazy. They're nuts. They're, they're living like they're in some kind of cult. When I was first saved, it was that we were called fanatics. Oh, you're, you're one of those fanatics. You're one of those Jesus people. See, the, the hippie communes were big when I was first saved. And they thought all Christians were like that. Just a bunch of hippies that had gone nuts. This is the line that many people won't cross for to cross it would be to align yourself in some in a sense with Jesus you remember Epaphras who was with the apostle Paul and he came to see him in while he was in prison over and over again at his At his own peril, he was not ashamed of his chain. He was not ashamed to be aligned with Jesus. Let's make sure that our lives are such that when people take notice of what we do or what we don't do, that we can give credit where it's due and we can say with boldness, As this man did, I was blind. That's all I know. I was blind, but now I see. And it was because of Jesus, the prophet. Christ alone. And that's where it needs to be because that's the way all of the universe is going to end up. Romans 11, verse 36. For from Him... And through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory. Forever. Amen. Will our lives line up with that in the end? Oh, we're gonna we're gonna find times of weakness and times of sinfulness and times of failure. But in the end. We, we must stand up and say it's because of Christ. It's because of Jesus that I am what I am. And it's by the grace of God. I trust we'll do that this week. As we go about from here to there, meet people and rub shoulders with people that we will, they will be able to see us different than the rest of the world around them. And we can say it's because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that we're able to come and to worship, and we do worship you this morning. You are our God. We love you, and we desire in our hearts to follow you and to be obedient to you. And Lord, so many times we're weak, and we stumble, and we sin, and Lord, you have said if we would confess, you would forgive and cleanse, and so we We hold you to those promises, and you are faithful. And I pray that as, like this blind man, when we're asked, what did he do to you? We would be able to say, I was blind, but he opened my eyes. I was a sinner, but he saved me. And it's all because of Jesus the grace that is found in him alone. Pray you would do this for the sake of your own name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.